0: You're listening to the Real Estate Runway podcast powered by Quattro Capital, where we are all about alternative business and investment strategies to help you amplify life and maximize wealth. Here's your host, the recovering engineer turned multifamily investor, Chad Sutton. Real Estate Runway family, today we have Bill Ham on the show. Bill has been a longtime real estate professional. He has operated everything from single family to multifamily and other assets. He is one of the industry experts on the market cycle and creative financing for deals, which we're going to actually talk about that topic quite a bit today. So there'll be some nuts and bolts and some, we're only going to scratch the surface guys, but he is authored a book called Creative Cash, which you can get on Amazon or Audible that really goes into this. So I encourage you to read that. It's probably the best $15 you'll spend this year. Without further ado, let's get into this episode. All right, Real Estate Runway family, welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Runway podcast. I'm your host, Chad Sutton, and I'm joined today with a very special guest, Bill Ham. Bill is the chief operating officer and driving force behind the Broadwell Property Group. He has upwards of 20 years experience in real estate with a proven track record of identifying, acquiring, operating, and divesting large footprint multifamily housing. He is a real estate entrepreneur, a sought after speaker, an author and an operator, but his real passion lies in education. Over the years, he has coached and mentored hundreds of students, indirectly me is one of them, we'll talk about that, who have gone on to close countless millions of dollars of their own deals, many crediting bills with their successes. So I cannot express how fortunate we are to have Bill on the show. Bill, welcome. How you doing, sir? Well, I appreciate that, Chad. That was, that was an excellent introduction. I'm doing good. I don't think I
1: have anything to add to that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's fantastic, Bill. Well, hey, man, so take us back through Bill's life real quick and tell us real quick how Bill came to be you know, the real estate entrepreneur he is today, you know, tell us a little bit about who you are. And then I'd love to get into creative financing with you a little bit, because I think that is one of the many areas you are a proclaimed expert on.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, I've been in real estate, as you mentioned, for quite a while now and uh, over 16 years. And I started my career in life as a corporate pilot flying airplanes. And short story, I saw friends of mine going out flipping houses, doing small real estate deals and i noticed that you know in one or two transactions these individuals were making the same amount of money that i was making working all year long and and i really had kind to of stop think about that and i said well, wait a minute you know we were all at the same bar last night we were all at the same party we were all doing the same things except in the morning, I woke up and went to work, and all you guys went out and, and did real estate. And I thought, y'all, are a bunch of idiots. You know, you're just friends of mine. I mean, you know, there's no different, right? If you can do it, I can do it. Monkey see, monkey do. And so I thought, you know, hold on, I'm missing something. And so I really started to kind of explore that concept. Why were people that were very much like myself, that were not super intelligent, not super great at business, you know, they weren't rock stars in anything, particular, just normal people. But they were getting up and making more money than I was working a whole lot less than I was on their time and their schedule, you know, when they wanted to. And I thought something's wrong here. So I I started reading and studying and I spent about a year just going through a lot of the general material, you know, the popular books and the popular subjects. I spent about a year just gaining uh, as much education as I could until I felt, you know, I had had really done enough studying. A friend of mine had a duplex for sale. And I said, "Okay, can you sell or finance that to me? Because I don't have any money. And I don't have any experience, and I don't know what in heck I'm doing. And, uh, and the guy said, "Yeah, sure, why uh, not? You know, at a really exorbitant price, we'll be happy to seller finance that deal to you." So, best friend of mine, who I'm still great friends with today, seller finance my very first deal. I was able to get in with uh, very little money down, and then refinance at the a bank uh, some sometime later. Pull all the money out. So that was my very first deal. Yeah, I got in um, seller financing with a refinance into permanent debt. I had saved up about ten grand. That was my total life savings when I walked away from aviation. I, I closed the duplex. It was cash flowing uh, about three hundred bucks a month, and that's what I walked away from aviation with and thought, you know, hey, I'm going to figure this out. So 10 grand, two two units and $300. And and I started a real estate business. So I don't necessarily, everybody listening to this, I don't necessarily recommend that you run out and quit your job and do something crazy like that. I was 28 years old at the time, no children, no wife, no debt. It was a little bit easier, but you do have to figure out sort of where's your comfort zone Stay out of that. Don't go all the way out into your shock zone, but you got to get out of the comfort zone. Don't go too far, but, but uh, that's kind of what I did. So I figured, hey, you know, every time something gets tough in my life, I'd run back to the job. That was my shelter. I realized I needed to get away from that in order to be
0: committed to what I was trying to do. So I took the risk. and yeah, That's how I got here. That's incredible, Bill. So your first deal wound up being a cash out refi win, you know, sometime later. Correct. Took a little while, but yeah, I was able to cash out and refi. Yep. refi Well, it's a good proof of concept. And, and, you know, I'm I'm similar to you. I also burned the boat, right? I did it with one kid, so not two kids. It was, you (laughs) you know, so I still had a little bit of a little trouble there, but that's really fantastic. And I love what you said about, Stay out of your comfort zone, but away from your shock zone, you know, and for some, you know, the comfort zone is the job. And, and you have to get away from that. Like I did, you know, I was well, too, way too comfortable with my six figure salary to really get off and start a company. Whereas, you know, that may not be the best route for everyone. You don't want to cut off your your food source, right? If that's how you're eating, you know, if you're in that situation. So I love that perspective. So, okay, creative financing, Bill, that, that's the topic of the day. Let, let's start there. What does creative financing mean to you? You know, and our audience, by the way, is mostly multifamily investors and young operators. So, you know, they're, they're going to be like, oh, well, sure, that works for single family housing, but well, maybe we're going to bust a myth here. Absolutely. Creative financing, works for everything financial it doesn't even have anything to do with
1: real estate. it can be any type of business and creative and creativity always pays and there's always a skill set that you need to learn I don't care what business you're in even like yourself raising children sometimes it takes creativity you know creative financing kids, right? <laughs> So uh, basically creative financing in a broad spectrum is using an offer to create value for a seller. That's the short answer. In exchange, that seller is going to help you get financing on this deal in some manner. All right. So what I'm saying is you've you've got to look at some kind of deal, a seller and the asset and the whole package and say, does what motivates this seller? Does this seller have a problem that I can solve? And if the answer is yes, then creative financing is, is creating that offer That allows you to trade that problem solving scenario, whatever it may be, for help getting into the deal. More specifically, we're talking about things like seller financing, where the seller actually carries a loan and acts as the bank, master lease options or lease options, depending on whether you're doing single family or multi. If it's single, it's a lease option. If it's multiple units, multi family, we just call it a master lease option same structure just has that word master because there's more units you could be you know and, and then we can get really creative i mean i've done partnerships credit cards lines of credit you know i mean some of those i don't recommend but uh, you know i've i've done all sorts of ways of getting deals done and so that's what i want everybody to understand is there is no set rule book that this is out of bounds for creativity and this is in bounds for creativity. That's not the way it works. You know, anything, as long as it's legal, ethical and gets the deal done is a good deal. So, so you really want to kind of just think outside the box. Um, I can certainly give you some guidelines, but again, don't get pigeonholed. There's every deal and every seller and every problem has a very unique solution and everyone is different.
0: Yeah. And so I'm thinking about, you know, you and I have done deals for a while. We we, we kind of know what this looks like in certain ways, but let, let's let's maybe run a couple of examples. Sure. Let's start to unfog this concept a little bit. So let's just say, for example, we're going to debunk the myth that this only works in single family housing and no other assets in the world, right? right. That's, that's the common, common thought. Pick a multifamily transaction. Let's talk about a creative way you might take it down. Sure. And I,
1: I can pull from my own roster of deals. Number one, Burned out landlord, one of my favorites, you know, someone who thought they like myself were smarter than the average bear, got into real estate and went, "Whoa, that's a little more difficult than I expected. You know, they they thought that real estate was like that, that uh, guru in that midnight commercial said it would be, you know, easier than you think. No money down, no problem. Well, you know, that's not true. That's just not true. Real estate is a lot of work and it is a tangible asset, meaning it is something that must be dealt with, managed. Uh, You know, it's a living entity that needs to be fed and dealt with and managed. So that's where I think a lot of people get into real estate and then realize, okay, this is more than I I bargained for. I need to get out. Now, maybe they've got a loan. That's a big one. What if they have a a Fannie or Freddie type loan that comes with a lot of prepayment penalty? Oh, they can't get out of this mortgage without giving a whole bunch of money to the bank and prepayment. That's a great place. The asset's not in bad shape. The landlord or the owner, for whatever personal reason, is burned out. And and they need to give this property to a better operator to to help them in the situation they're in. That's a great master lease option scenario right there. That's uh, the largest one I ever did was 108 units. Seller who doesn't want to take a full burden on taxes, you know, a full capital gains hit. Let's say this is an individual that has owned the property for many years. Yes, they're going to pay less in capital gains. They're going to pay long-term capital gains, not short-term. But nonetheless, they're going to take a big chunk of that money that they get at closing, and they're going to give it right to the government. A lot of people are not okay with that. And so maybe they want more of a, a revenue stream. They like the cash flow that they've been getting from the property. They just don't want to lose all this money in taxes. Seller financing. See, now they're, they're spreading out that tax hit over many, many months or some years, and it lessens that tax burden. So there are tons. I mean, I could go on and on. As a matter of fact, I, I literally wrote the book on, on a number of reasons why this works. But, you know, so point being is there's a myriad of reasons why someone would do this kind of financing and has many options for us to, to create value. So uh, those are just a few examples as to why and how we can do uh, creative financing on multifamily. It can be retail. It can be industrial. It can be hotels. It, it doesn't matter. Uh, it's all about being able to solve someone's problem create an offer that translates that message in, in getting a deal done.
0: All right. That's pretty, that's pretty intriguing. You know, it, it really kind of challenges you to think creatively about the situation and not necessarily just buy this in the conventional sense and, and be a number of offer you know, one of a number of offers on the table. So, in your experience, when you're trying to find deals of, you know, sellers of this sort, you're probably not looking at call for offer deals on, on the market that are that are doing this. So how are you connecting with situations, I'm going to say, to where this might actually be on the table? How do you find these problem, you know, people with problems that you have to, to solve, you know? You don't. Number one answer, right. you don't, right? Everyone always wants to
1: know where are all of the creative financing deals Where's that one-stop shop that I can go over there and there's all the credit, it doesn't exist. You do not go out looking for creative financing deals for a whole number of reasons. Number one, it's going to make you miss other deals that might be viable deals. Number two, if you're working with realtors or particular sellers and you approach them with this attitude of, I need, or I want some sort of creative financing, you look like you might not be able to close. You look like you might not have any money. You might not be credible. And that's not a great way to start a relationship with a new realtor or a seller or someone like that. So the main concept, and I I love it when, when people ask that question, how do we find these deals? You don't. So what you do is you just look at deals just like you always look at deals, just like you've always been looking at deals. And when you look at the deal, whether it be from a realtor or direct to owner or mail, whatever, however you come across your deal flow, now you've got a deal on your desk and you sit down and you analyze this deal. And you say, gosh, if I walk over to the, the bank, Fannie, wherever, and get a traditional loan, put some money down and buy this property, those numbers don't work. Now, why didn't, all right, so right there, we know this deal is not gonna be good for just getting us a loan, putting down money, fine why does the deal not work? Is it price? Is it because the expenses are too high? Is it because there's deferred maintenance? Is the asset distressed? What's going on here? Why does this deal not work for us? Step two, now, instead of taking the deal and saying, well, that doesn't work, throw it in the trash. I'm saying, hold on, pull it out of the trash. Let's reevaluate this deal from the perspective of creativity. What's wrong with the property and can we solve whatever is wrong with the property? And if the answer is yes, now we make a creative offer that allows us to get access to the property so that we can solve the problem. So for example, you know, if, if there were a lot of deferred maintenance, um, maybe we do seller financing where we bring some of the down payment money instead of actually giving it to the seller for down payment. Maybe we spend that money on their property, fix up their property in exchange for down payment, uh, You know, burned out landlord, different things of that nature. Um, yeah, but it, it's really about the deal analysis and not the deal flow. Deal flow is however it comes in. You're crunching numbers. Hey, if you can go get a loan, put down 20 25%, buy it with a loan and, and close you should do that. You should not do creative financing. If you can just use a bank, you got all cash, go do it. When you can't, that's when we bring in creative financing. So I want everybody to understand that creative financing is not a one-stop solution. It is meant to increase probability, not possibility, probability, right? Anything's possible, but is it probable that we will get this deal or that deal? That's all I'm saying. So if you're closing, let's say, I always say that you'll close about one in every 80 deals that you analyze, right? And that's with traditional financing. Meaning if you go through 80 deals, you crunch the numbers, you look at them, you're probably going to get about one of those to close each cycle of 80. With creative financing, maybe we can take that number to three or four or five out of 80. You know, that's all it's for. So please don't think this is the, the I'm going to go out and do only lease options. I'm going to go out and do only seller financing deals. That's not how we do this. So it's it's a, a probability increase. It is more tools in the toolbox, as the common adage uh, goes.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And, and uh, something I love you said there right there is that you can't really approach people looking for this, right? And so I do wanna to get to to kind of what some example term, let's get some nuts and bolts, what example terms are. But before that, there's a little bit of negotiation and and people skills, you know, understanding people that goes into this a little bit. So let's say you, you found this burned out owner, maybe let's just build an example, right? He owns a 50-unit building in, in the Southeast. He's a, He was a 1031 buyer out of California, you know, there's a lot of those that come to our side of the, of the country. And he just he's in over his head, he's, he's managing from afar, he hired some dinky little manager who doesn't know what they're doing and he can't afford a real management company, whatever the situation is, right? So he's marketed the deal. You've brought an offer and and they don't like the, the market rate. So how do you approach him, him or her, and try to get them to actually accept this creative strategy? What would be your tactic there? Yeah. So this is what I call the SPY technique. And this is an
1: acronym that I created by studying students of mine that were successful and were failures at using the techniques of creative financing. And so after studying the failures and the successes, I realized there was one common pattern. The students that would solve the problems in the manner I'm about to describe would close 10 times as many deals as the students that didn't, that reversed the pattern. And so that's where I created this acronym SPI, and it stands for Seller Property You. That is the order in which you want to approach the analysis or the negotiation, or more correctly, or, you know, accurate to what you're asking. Is, is so we sit down and when we're analyzing the deal, we have to start with the seller. What motivates the seller? What do they want? Why are they selling? What are their plans for the capital if they sell? What's going on? What are they they trying to do here? And can we solve any problems for the seller? Okay, next we go to the property and we say, okay, what is right or wrong with the property? And does my offer solve any problems there? And then lastly, we look at ourselves and we say, okay, is this good for us? Does this work for us? Is, this, is there enough return on effort? Not return on investment, return on effort, right? Is this really worth the brain damage of going in here and doing this? So it's seller property you. That is the order in which you really kind of need to start your analysis and then engage in the negotiation the students that I've had that were not successful typically reverse the model. And they, they made offers that were good for them. I want seller financing. I want a lease option. I want this. I want that. They would look at the property and they'd say, okay, yeah. And I guess I better do this to the property. And then almost as an afterthought they're, they're thinking of the seller. Well, I always say that a good deal is 90% seller, 10% real estate. You can have the best deal in the world. If you don't have a, a willing seller, you're going to go nowhere, right? So it's really the focus is seller, then to the property, and then lastly, your interests. If you will analyze your deals, if you will think creatively in that order, I guarantee you, you'll close, your, your probability of closing will go up 100% easily just by using that one technique.
0: That makes a ton of sense. And, and when you're talking about seller first, I mean, it, it's people first, it's the person first. Right. Before they are in multifamily owner, they are a person. They have problems, needs, and wants, right? And I'm with you, you know, I've I've given several talks on structuring deals and and what that whole world looks like. And I'm convinced 100% of deals are not found, they're made, right? You can can find lots of deals, but you can really make
1: Yes, I I agree. I'm so glad you said that because I have to have that conversation with my students so often. They think that they're just going to go out and and, you know click on LoopNet or they're going to open up uh, the MLS or whatever the case. And here's your here's your top deals of just hot great deals and they're just laying right there. Just choose one. Very very rarely does that occur. Again, I'm not going to say that's impossible. I'm saying it's highly improbable. You are likely to find a deal that is going to need some kind of scrubbing. Value add, figuring out, moving the pieces around, some some vision, maybe to see value that others did not see. You know, that's where real deals are. They're created. They're not found. And I'm so glad you said that. I always uh, like to use the phrase uh, valuation through operation, not renovation. So I personally love finding deals that the value add is not in the realm of renovating that property. It is in the realm of operating it better than the last individual. So I'm looking for an owner operator who is not operating well, and I can see that in the profit and loss. And I come in and straighten out their operations and, and create value that way. Yes, renovations great, but that's low hanging fruit. Everybody can go slap some paint on the walls and put up some new countertops and some carpet. Fine. That doesn't really take a lot of skill set to do that. And therefore, if that's the only hammer you have, and those are the only nails you see, you're just going to try and hit everything with a renovation hammer all the time, and it works. Until it doesn't. Right. So, again, what I'm trying to say here is there's a whole nother arena of ways that, as you pointed out, Chad, we can create deals. And so that's what I believe, uh, you know, my techniques are for is the increasing the probability that we create a deal and and not just hopefully get lucky and and stump our toe on one land there on on the top, which, again, is not like
0: that's exactly it, Bill. And I love I love the way you're saying this. I mean, let's layer in a common theme here, supply and demand, right? There are a lot of buyers. We have a big supply of buyers. We have a smaller supply of multifamily deals. There's something like $50 billion right now, capital seeking multifamily deals. Okay. The low hanging fruit, those that are marketed, have a beautiful OM, everything's spick and span. All you have to do is spend 3,000 bucks a door to get 300 bucks in rent, you know, get right. Those are there. But the problem is there are 50 people trying to buy it, so you're going to pay way too on much to get it, right? Whereas, you know, and I'm sure you, many of your deals have been the same way. Everything we buy has a lot of dirt on it, right? Doesn't mean it's a dirty property, but it's like, it's complicated because of something. We we've bought things from estate sales and trusts. We've bought things that were in foreclosure. We bought things from a seller that literally got imprisoned for lying in bankruptcy court. I mean, you know, just complexity after complexity. Everyone else puts it to the side. You, you solve the problem, whether it be the sellers or the lenders or whoever's in control of the deal, the judges in some cases, right? That's how you do it. You know, so I love exactly. that you're saying this. And I love it.
1: That's what I'm saying. so like, when you analyze a deal, it doesn't work. And your your, your thought process is to throw it in the trash and go to the next one. So I'm saying, hold on, pull it back out of the trash. Let's do exactly what Chad and I are talking about. rescrub that deal, put your creative hat on, pull out a few of the techniques that we're going to talk about, apply them. If it still isn't a deal, okay, then move on. But don't just throw in the trash because your quick read says it's not a good deal. I have I have bought one of the best deals I ever, ever, ever did was all the way out on LoopNet. It had been on LoopNet for a while. You know, can't make this up. Every It was a distressed asset. Everybody was misunderstanding the deal and they kept trying to make offers based on the revenue it was collecting, which was low because the occupancy was low and, and the seller wouldn't sell. And what people were, just didn't realize was, was the whole market was like 95% occupancy. But the one property was like sixty percent. You know, I mean, it was a, it was a bad operator. It had nothing to do with the market. It had nothing to do with the real estate. And they kept trying to make offers based on sixty percent occupancy. And and that's where I always say, you know, everybody always likes to say, don't buy on pro forma. You know, buy on actuals. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's a great idea. But hold on, the real comment here is, don't buy on pro forma. I disagree. Don't buy on the realtor's pro forma. Yes, I agree. But every time you sit out and create a business plan for a property, that is a pro forma. You are buying the property on Proforma. It's just your Proforma, not the Realtors. So be careful about trying to always make offers strictly on, on in-place income and that's it. You, you may kill some deals that way. So you might have to tighten up, sharpen the pencil. It's okay to buy on Proforma if you know what you're doing and never buy on the Realtors Proforma. Create your own and, and go forward. That's how you make deals, not find them.
0: Pure words of wisdom, folks. That right there is exactly right. And and to, you know, to give a, an intrinsic value example, right? I'm an engineer. I was taught to take things to the limit to see if an equation works, right? Take it to the limit. Let's go to, Let's go look at a property where the NOI is zero. Why is it zero? Because it's fully vacant. In fact, it's negative because property taxes are still due. It's fully vacant. Maybe there's a fire. I don't know. That building is not worth zero dollars, right? That building has intrinsic value. The land has intrinsic value. You just have to figure out, okay, well, how much is it cost me to fix it? What's it going to, what it's going to cost me to operate it. And what can I rent these for and how long is it going to take me to get there? And that, and you can determine a value based on that. So everyone has a different set of lenses of what things are worth to them. If I'm talking to, to Bill or myself or someone who maybe leverages private equity, they're going to have a lower value on a building because you got to pay a spread. If I'm talking to someone at Goldman Sachs, who's deploying 50 million bucks they needed to yesterday for a 3% return, they might be worth a lot more. So beauty's in the eye of the beholder and look like you said, create deals. So we are down a tangent here. I apologize, but that was a good one. We had to do it. So before we wrap this up, Bill, yeah. Give us an example of, of some of the nuts and bolts on a seller finance too. Like what, what would, maybe one you've done, but what was the interest rate? What was the leverage? Like give us some of the actual terms because I don't think people have any idea what to even ask for.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, again, as I've said, each deal is is different. Basically, seller financing is, is just like anything else, like a bank. You know, the, the seller is going to act as the bank. You're going to probably need to put down some money. There's going to be an interest rate. There's going to be a length of time, and you know that's really about it. So, number one, down payment obviously as little as possible is ideal, but again, you you got to be reasonable. You have to sell, solve some sort of seller problem. I would be looking in the range of of maybe ten to twenty percent normal for for down payment. Here's a tip. Again, I've already kind of said this. If you can use money instead of down payment to renovate a seller's property. Do that. I don't want to have to come in and put down 20% and then put another 10% into your property. And now I'm into this thing, 30, 40% all out. That may not make your numbers work. So what I would do is Chad, if you had a deal, you're financing it to me. Excuse me. I would say, okay, great. How much down payment do you want? 20%. I would then look at the asset and see if there was work that needed to be done. And I may come back and say, hey, Chad, I'll tell you what, I'll give you 10% down and I'll do this other 10% uh, worth of work to your property. Hey, worst case scenario, you take the property back. It's in better shape than when you gave it to me. That's one trick I try and use on down payment. Interest rate is negotiable. You're probably going to be somewhere around a bank or common market rates, maybe even a little higher to be able to uh, you know, incentivize the seller to want to do this. Term that really depends. You you got to look at several things here. This is a much lengthier conversation, but you got to look at the the market where we're at. You got to kind of figure out where you're going and what is your exit strategy. So if your plan was to fix up, renovate, and sell this property, you wouldn't want to maybe and it was say 200 units. You probably wouldn't want to get six months worth of seller financing. That's not enough time to exercise your business model. So you got to kind of figure out what's it going to take to to renovate, to stabilize. To lease it up, then you need to operate the property for at least 90 days to maybe 180 days to get some good financial numbers behind it, and then maybe you can refinance or sell. If you're looking to refinance from seller financing, the last thing we have to keep in mind is called the seasoning period. A lender is not likely, I'm not saying impossible, but not likely to allow you to buy a property turn right around and cash out refi. You can refi, but rule of thumb, if you're sort of within a year, they may fall back to the original purchase price for the value. You don't want that. You want to get a new appraisal on the property because you forced the value to go up. 12 to 18 months is a rule of thumb that you're probably going to have to own that property before you can refinance. So be careful if you say, hey, I'm going to go over here to you know, Bob, the hard money lender, and I'm going to borrow uh, money from him at 15% and five points in this higher thing, because I'm just going to go right around to the bank and refinance in 90 days and, and pay the hard money lender back. And that's okay. And you close the deal with this hard money lender only to find out, oops, you've got to own that property for a year, 18 months before you can refinance and pay that lender back. Bet that property won't work. I have, that is a true case study with a student of mine. I stopped from going into foreclosure They went to a hard money lender. They thought they were going to refine about 90 days, pay that person back. And uh, when they went and talked to their bank after I told them, watch out for seasoning period, the bank said, no, you got to own it for at least 12 months. They would have gone straight into foreclosure and that hard money lender would have loved to take that property from them uh, if they would have gotten into that scenario. So be very, very careful about that
0: pure gold and more nuggets than we can ever do in a 25 minute podcast bill thank you for that (laughs) i'm going to switch over here and get into our quattro trio three questions that would that quattro likes to ask all of our guests here so i'm going to go a little little bit backwards here because of what we were just talking about you've got a book out there on this stuff so tell us about this book and where we can find it because there is so much more than we can ever cover in this episode Oh yeah, we were just getting warmed up, right? <laughs> yeah, so the book is called
1: Creative Cash. You can get it on Amazon, Audible, and Kindle. So Creative Cash by Bill ham that's one M. If you just search that, you'll pull it right up again and go straight to Amazon and, and get that book. Highly recommend it. The best $15 you're gonna spend. I mean, you really stop and think about the skills and the techniques that you're gonna pick up From that one book, there's there's really very few places you're going to spend $14 and a half dollars, whatever the price is, to gain that kind of skill set. So that's my sales pitch. I did write it. It is a good book. But Creative Financing, Creative Caches is is the book, uh, and it is on Amazon, Kindle,
0: and Audible. Fantastic. And if people want to get to know you a little bit more as well and then see some of your video rants, where can they go to find that on YouTube?
1: Yeah, well, uh, YouTube we have I've just recently launched a website, or excuse me, a uh, channel called uh, Real Estate Raw, which I'll give you a, a spoiler alert. happens to be the title of a new book that is coming out in October. So Creative Cash is available today. Real estate raw it will be available in October. It is my new YouTube channel. I will be putting stuff out there. I've got a lot of material that I put out weekly on Instagram. Um, that's Bill Ham underscore real estate. If you're looking for me on Instagram, I put out a lot of material there. LinkedIn, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, you know, pretty pretty easy. But yeah, th- those are the best places. If you want to contact me directly, I'll give you my email and uh, and website. Email is bill at go Dot com Pretty simple. Broadwell is B-R-O-A-D-W-E-L-L, gobroadwell.com. And the website is broadwellpropertygroup.com. If you're an investor and you're looking to do business or you want to find out how you can invest in some of my deals or do business with me, please go to Broadwell Property Group. We have a little spot. It says investor
0: login. Just put in some information. We'll be in touch with you directly. Fantastic. That was a very thorough answer to the first question. I love it. Good stuff, Bill. Now, the second two, tell me, what is your superpower in this business? I think we've heard a lot of it here, but what do you think your superpower is?
1: Superpower. Usually I would say creativity, you know, problem solving, but I'm actually going to say tolerance for failure. Ah. That's my superpower Is is my ability to understand the art of failure. That's, that's why I think most people go wrong uh, in America, especially in Western society, is that we do not understand art of failure. So I'll, 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 I'll turn the page on you real quick, Chad. Question for you. What's the
0: definition of insanity? The definition of insanity, I think, said by Albert Einstein, is repeating the same mistakes over and over, looking for different results. Albert Einstein is wrong. Aha. Albert Einstein
1: was wrong. All right. Number one, two comments. Look up the actual definition of insanity. That admit that was a quote created by Albert Einstein. And ninety-nine point nine percent of the people in the world, when you ask them what is the definition of insanity, they say that right there. Now I'll ask you another question: What is the definition of practice?
0: Of practice? Well, I don't have a quote for that one, but I think it would be repeating the same thing over and over again, hoping for different results. Is practice insane? Only the definition of insanity
1: that we all currently have by Albert Einstein is insane. He was wrong. You must practice. You must not only stand there and fail expecting a different result. You better stand there and fail until you damn well get one. (laughs) <laughs> right you got to practice and practice and practice until you get that other result there's where people typically fail in business and there's where people typically fail i think in our society is they don't have an understanding of practice and they don't have an understanding of failure success stands on the shoulders of failure right you got to fail forward to succeed and so that's where i think a lot of people go wrong they don't have a proper enough tolerance for failure They have that uh, hurry up and get there, hurry up and be successful, overnight success kind of attitude. And when they have to put it in practice, all of a sudden they start coming up with that insanity definition. So I'm on a personal mission to destroy the concept that Albert Einstein put out there in the world because he was wrong. And that's a horrible concept personal mission.
0: Folks, this is the first time but a guest has gotten me to step in a bear trap on the air. This is pretty good, but you are right. Insanity is not repeating the same thing over and over again and look for different results. That's what practice is. And you fail once, go again.
1: Yeah. From such a genius person to come up with
0: such a, <laughs> to be so wrong fair enough fair enough I love it all right last question bill ready for it let's do it we've heard all the all the reasons you're brilliant we've heard all this this good this good nuts and bolts material that's that's going to be corroborated by your books tell us give me some dirt man what is your biggest mistake? In your life or in business? And what did it teach you? Hold on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. We think about it a little bit. Uh, business, one of my big, biggest mistakes in business was probably being too arrogant about my reputation, too arrogant about my ability to raise money thinking that a stack of business cards equaled a network. A stack of business cards does not equal a network. Let me tell you from experience, right? And so that was my big... One of my big mistakes was thinking that I could just go around and meet people, gather business cards, and that that was really good enough. My, my problem was I wasn't following up. I wasn't building the relationships. I, w- I was being lazy. And I went to go out and do a deal. I went to go out and syndicate a deal and raise money. And what I found myself doing was was pulling out the drawer and you know emptying out all the old business cards and going through these business cards, going, hey, uh, you know, I met you somewhere once, sometime. Uh, would you like to invest in my deal? Yeah, that didn't go over so well. So you know, you you really cannot let your relationships go cold. You really cannot let the leads go cold, uh, especially all the more if you're a syndicator. If you're trying to use you know other people's money, you're trying to break into the business. It is all about partnerships, and partnerships are about you bringing value to someone else, not them bringing value to you. Spy technique: you bringing value to them. I wasn't doing it. I wasn't following up. I got arrogant and that cost me
0: $150,000 in earnest money on a failed syndication that afternoon. That was probably one of my bigger ones. Fair enough. And that is the, that is so right. You know, I mean, in our group, we have people dedicated to that. I mean, that, that is their only role is, is make sure that our relationships are warm. Make sure, make sure people know that we care about them. Make sure that they realize we realize they are people, not just Numbers in our CRM, you know? So don't don't get it. No, I get it, man. I get it. That's, That's fantastic. All right. Well, Real Estate Runway family, this has been an action packed episode full of creative financing strategies, only scratching the surface. Go read that book. It's a good read. I've done it myself. And until next time, this has been the Real Estate Runway Podcast. How is your company managing your capital raising process? Syndication Pro is the number one solution to help real estate syndicators and fund managers automate fundraising, investor relations, and reporting. Syndication Pro is a solution that is trusted by hundreds of firms, large and small, with billions being managed within the platform. Here at Quattro Capital, we have seen a drastic improvement in our ability to provide better customer support to our investors, a co-sponsor module to our alliance partners when partnering on new acquisitions, ACH distributions, an sec compliance CRM, and even the ability to take soft reservations on upcoming projects. Look for the link in the show notes to try Syndication Pro risk-free for seven days. We hope this episode was insightful and brought value to your day. If so, please be awesome and leave us a five-star review. Find out how Team Quattro can help you at thequattroway.com. Until next time, this is the Real Estate Runway Podcast.